you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Exodus 4, 1 through 17. As you turn there, let me just uh, say, uh, on a Memorial Day weekend, I was struck just having uh, my own time to study and prepare of uh, the luxury, so many luxuries, that we enjoy uh, here in our society, in our culture, uh, to be able to go sit in an air-conditioned office with books that are easily purchased, readily available, to be able to study, to be able to gather on a Sunday morning without any fear of any threats. That is, that is a true gift. This is the exception, not the rule. And it, uh, it often makes me think of what Paul says in Galatians when he is speaking, of course, primarily in a spiritual context, but it, it carries over in so many ways as a general principle, where Paul says uh, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Only do not use your freedom for an opportunity to serve the flesh, but with love serve one another. That's a counterintuitive way to think about the gift of freedom, both spiritually and materially. To think that freedom is given not first and foremost so that we can do whatever we want to do to serve ourselves or be self-indulgent, but freedom ultimately is given by God so that we can love and serve others. And so I would encourage you as you enjoy this weekend, most of us will probably have the day off tomorrow, uh, to reflect not just on the blessings that we have uh, here in this country that so many other people would long to have where they live, but to also consider the spiritual ramifications that, uh, that that freedom bears with it and to use your liberty and your freedom uh, in the most effective and beneficial way for eternal gain. Ephe uh, Ephesians, Exodus chapter 4. In chapter 3, after many hundreds of years of silence and invisibility, God appears. He makes himself seen to Moses to say that he has come to save, to deliver his people. One of the constant themes that runs through Exodus, beginning particularly in chapter 3, is the connection that exists between God's presence and God's salvation. When God comes to save his people, he comes himself to do it. In part, what he's doing when he saves his people is that he is showing more of himself. He's revealing more of his nature and his power and his character to his people. Moses will be something like an intermediary to serve to that end goal of salvation, but always with the understanding that God is with Moses and also with his people. So God has been making that known to Moses through chapter 3, revealing his name, the steadfastness of who God is in his nature. I'm, I'm always myself, and that's why you can be confident that I'm going to make good on my promises. And he continues on in chapter 4 with Moses wrestling and struggling with this work of salvation and deliverance that he's been called to labor for. And so we pick up in Ephesians 4. I said Ephesians again. We're in Exodus. We're in Exodus. Is everyone in Exodus? Man alive. 
Exodus chapter 4. Ephesians doesn't even talk about Moses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, or some of your versions may read, Then Moses answered, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Very sensible. Verse 4, But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out, uh, when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, Then you will take some water from the Nile and pour it out on on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he will speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You will take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend and hearts to love your work of salvation revealed through your servant, Jesus Christ. All of this that we read in Exodus ultimately is just casting a shadow forward to the greater work of redemption that would come through your son, a servant to us, to lead us out of our bondage and slavery to sin. We ask, Father, that you would give us humility to receive the word that you have brought to us, and it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit that we pray this. Amen. So the big idea for this passage that we have today, we're going to be working off of this idea, is that God sends his servant with signs to confirm that the Lord has come to save his people. 
You don't want to get lost in sort of the, the oddity or the curiosity that comes with some of these miraculous events. Staff becoming a snake, hand becoming diseased and then undiseased, water being turned to blood. You want to recognize that what God is doing is that, once again, similar to what we've already seen in chapter 3, this is all about God sending Moses as his servant to deliver his people, to bring them out of bondage and slavery, and to bring them into the good land where they can enjoy fellowship with God and the blessing of his promises. So when God is sending Moses to do that work, the relationship or the significance of the signs that we have here in chapter 4 are to that ultimate end. These signs are meant to signify that Moses is the one that God has sent and that the people ought to listen to him. In signifying that God has sent Moses, it's meant to signify. These signs are meant to show or affirm that God is already at work to save them and to deliver them. So God sends his servant, Moses, with signs to confirm that the Lord has come to save his people. This is important because we saw, I think it was last week, if not last week, it was the week before, that one of the things that Exodus does, and this becomes sort of a, a paradigm for the work of Christ in the New Testament, is that there is a way in which what God does himself he does through Moses. So earlier in chapter 3, God says, I have come down to bring my people out of Egypt and to bring them into a good land. And then just a few verses later, he says to Moses, so then I will send you and you will bring them out of Egypt into a good and spacious land. So God is the one who is ultimately accomplishing salvation for his people but that salvation that's being accomplished for his people is being accomplished in no small part through the work of his servant therefore if the servant fails in his work and his ministry salvation fails salvation depends on how the people will respond to the servant that God sends to them. Do you, do you see that? Do you understand the connection? Therefore, when Moses raises the question in chapter 4, okay, you've given me this message, you've given me this sight, this vision, if I go to them, but they don't believe anything that I say, what's going to happen then? It's imperative that Moses goes to Israel and does not return empty-handed. God is not looking to save one man. He's looking to save a people. And so, not because of any lack on God's part or any uncertainty or doubt that God has about his own plans or his own intentions, but because of the uncertainty that Moses has and potentially the uncertainty of the people, God gives signs to confirm his unfolding salvation. So a lot of times when we come to a passage like this, we are overly enamored with the sign itself. Oh my goodness. Stick turns into a snake. And then Moses is told, not just that he's got to pick it up, but he's got to pick it up by the tail. Man, I wouldn't do that. 
Oh man, Moses sticks his hand into his jacket when he brings it out. It's diseased, rotting flesh like leprosy, sticks it back in, perfectly healed again. Right? Those things, those things capture our attention. They, they provoke curiosity. Right? The danger, though, and what we want to be careful of is that we don't become so overly enamored with the signs that we fail to recognize the purpose of the signs. And here, the author makes it perfectly clear, the text makes it perfectly clear what these signs are doing. Notice by way of repetition. So you're going to need to go back, look at the book, all right, or look at your screen, whatever you have your, your Bible open to, print or digital, Start at verse 1. Notice how the giving of signs begins with this question that Moses asked. Moses asked, what if they will not believe me? Or listen to what I would say. What if they don't believe? You hear that? It's the issue of trust. It's the issue of faith. Skip down to verse 5. God gives him the sign of this staff turning into a snake, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord has appeared to you. Skip down to verse 8. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and the water will become blood. That was verse 9. I think I was supposed to read verse 8 and verse 9. You're going to have to bear with me. It's going to be one of those days. Verse 8, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. And then you have verse 9, which mentions belief again. So you, you see the point. The repetition in the storyline, in the text, of belief. What if the people don't believe? This is critically important. The signs that are given to Moses are not simply for show. It's not just a cool trick. The signs that are given to Moses are given for the express purpose that the people would believe the report that Moses is bringing to them. If the signs don't encourage or stimulate or provoke faith, belief in Moses and in his word, the signs are pointless. They're empty. They may look cool. They may draw a crowd. But if the sign doesn't point people to what God has said and what God is doing, the signs mean nothing. They're empty. God is after his people's faith, not merely their curiosity or their wonder and their amazement. We ought also to say or to recognize the, what should go understood but probably needs to be said, that the signs in generating faith, are meant to generate faith in what Moses says. In other words, what Moses says 
is even more important than the signs that he shows, right? I mean, the reason that you have signs is to point back to the validity of what has been said. In that sense, the word that Moses brings is more important than the wonder that he may generate through these signs. Do you get that? God wants his people to listen to his word. He wants his people to place their trust in what he has said he will do. He wants them to have faith, not in a sign, but in the word of his servants, the report that his servant Moses brings. This is very important. We are overly enamored with signs. We, we crave the kind of evidence that we think is sufficient in order for God's Word to be validated. What if they don't believe what I say to them? What if they don't believe the words that you have given to me, and God gives him signs so that they might believe his words. Here's one of the interesting things that we want to take notice of, something that I think, for if you're like me, just sort of flies over your head or flies under the radar, whatever the expression is that we want to use there, in this passage. Three signs are given. Staff becoming a snake, hand becoming leprous, water turned to blood. You ever stop to think about the fact that Moses actually does not give those signs to the Israelites at all? Who gets these signs? Two out of the three at least. Who will see this sign? Pharaoh will. Pharaoh and his court officials will see the sign of Moses' staff being turned to a snake. Will that sign that Pharaoh sees provoke him to faith in God? Will it encourage him to listen to the voice of Moses, to the words that he brings? Will he put his trust in what God has declared when he sees that sign? No. Signs are valuable, but signs are valuable only to a point. In fact, you might almost consider that one of the ways that signs work in the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you almost get the impression that the only people who respond positively to signs are the people who are already favorably disposed to hearing the word of the Lord. Because Pharaoh has no intention to listening to God's word, it doesn't matter what signs Moses gives, he's not going to bend. If you're here this morning and you, you don't know 
that Christ is Savior and Lord, you doubt the claims that God's servant, His Son, has made, what He has said about Himself. You may be in a position where you are tempted to think, if God would show me fill in the blank, then I would believe. If you think that way, I want to caution you to reconsider that you may not know just how weak and hard your own heart is. Pharaoh saw signs that were meant to generate belief, and it did nothing for him. If anything, it hardened him further. Hold your place here and go to Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, starting at verse 19. Right? Rich man's living very comfortably with his wealth and his prosperity. This poor beggar man, Lazarus, is sitting outside his, the walls or the gate of his house begging for food. Both men die, and the rich man who's fat, happy, and comfortable ends up in torment and it's the lame, poor, miserable beggar who ends up in paradise, Abraham's bosom. And in the course of the parable, as the rich man is suffering, all of his comforts, all of his rewards were in this life, and now he has nothing to gain for eternity. We have in the parable, if you skip down to verses 27 through 31, the rich man who's suffering torment, looks and sees, as it were, Lazarus enjoying his reward. And the rich man says this, Luke 16, verse 27, And he said, I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent and believe. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If you're here as someone who does not know Christ, you you doubt His claims, you doubt the Christian faith, and you're waiting for evidence to be given to you to prove to you or to sell you on the truthfulness of Christ's claims, I want to plead with you not to do that. 
not because God may not send you some sort of a sign or some sort of a show or may not persuade you in some sort of miraculous event, but because even if he does show something miraculous, your heart is so weak and jaded and twisted, it is not a guarantee that you are going to see or recognize or interpret or respond to that sign such that you will respond in faith. More effective, more trustworthy, more lasting, more convincing for you is the Word of God. If you're waiting to be convinced and to be persuaded that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that He is God made man for us, that He suffered and died in our place, was raised again to new life, to be vindicated and to offer new life for His people. If you're waiting for conviction, if you're waiting to be persuaded of that, let me appeal and even plead with you. Take up and read. Christians, the very best thing that you can do for an unsaved, an unbelieving friend or family member or co-worker is not to try to convince them with some sort of show or display. The most important, effective thing that you could do to enable someone to go from death to life is to bring them to God's Word. Give them God's Word. This could be as simple as, would you be willing to grab coffee with me once a week, once a month, and read a chapter of John and discuss it with me? You can call it crazy if you want. You can tell me what you don't like about it, what you don't believe, but, but would you be willing to do that and let God's Word have its good work on their heart and mind. Let God, by the power of His Word, bring life out of death. Christians, if you're here, you need to understand, we need to recognize that although we have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, that we do believe what God has spoken in His Word and spoken to us most clearly through the words and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Our hearts are still weak and frail and fickle. We all get to times in the Christian life where we are trying to walk the path of discipleship, we're trying to follow Christ, when we get to a place that we would rather not be, or we would get to a place where we are at our wit's end, not knowing whether to turn to the right or to the left, not knowing whether or not all of this is going to be worth it. And we can be tempted, just like everyone else, to say, if God will show me this or that or the other, then I will walk forward in confidence, believing that He is with me. You ever said that to yourself? Don't raise your hand. You ever thought that to yourself? You ever thought, if I saw half of what the Old Testament saints saw, I'd never have another day of doubt the rest of my life. You ever thought like that? Don't believe it. 
Christian, for you, you need to turn and look at what Jesus says in John chapter 20. Turn there. This is Thomas and his encounter with the resurrected Christ. He sees him, he touches him, he's in the room with him. And Thomas, on seeing Christ, announces, confesses, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says in John 20, verse 29, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's us. We were not around to see Jesus walking the earth after his death and resurrection. We were not around to see Jesus feed 5,000, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. We do not see those signs that Jesus performed, but Jesus says we are blessed if we don't see, but we believe because of what we have heard and what has been told to us. Christian, when you are weak and you are tempted to doubt that God is for you and not against you, that God will, in fact, bring you out of this misery and this broken world and lead you into the good land of all His promises, you need to preach to yourself from God's Word and say, no matter whether I see evidence or not, God's Word stands. What he has said and what he has done already is enough for me to trust him and for me to follow him and for me to walk and build my life, to bet eternity on the promises of God. So John picks up from that statement that Jesus makes, blessed are they who don't see and believe, and John says this in 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name." What God has already said and done is sufficient grounds for us to stand in faith and trust that God is a God who saves. What God has done in redemptive history, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, these signs that He has given are given to point us back to Him to provoke, to generate, to strengthen the faith of weak, frail people like us 
so that by the time that we come on this Sunday morning, we can say all that God has already said and done is enough for us. We will trust Him. Go back to Exodus. It's faith in God's Word. It's faith that God is present with His people that is at stake and is at issue here. Moses is going to carry God's Word to his people, and if they will not believe his words, they may believe the signs. Or they may not, in the case of Pharaoh, who obviously does not belong to God's people. But the other part to this, the other thing that's a little bit curious in all this is what's going through Moses' heart and mind. So, we know what the signs are there for. The signs are so that the people may believe the report, the word that Moses brings, so that the people may believe that God has come now to save them. Look with me, though, back in chapter 3, at verse 18. All that's happening in chapter 3 and chapter 4 appears to happen in one lengthy conversation or series of exchanges. In part of that exchange, in chapter 318, notice what God says. They will listen, speaking about the Israelites, they will listen to what you say, and you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt. They will listen to what you say. God says that. For one, Moses answers... That, that's, the, that's the Hebrew word. Not just Moses said. Moses answered and said. What if they won't believe? Anyone find that odd? Just for my sake, just nod your head yes. You find that very odd. God has already said the people will believe, and he goes on to say, let me give you a general outline for how everything is going to happen. You're going to go to the people. They're going to listen to you. Pharaoh will not listen to you. He will resist. I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and at the end of the day, I'm going to bring out the people like conquering heroes to go into the promised land. And then Moses answers is that answer back? Why, why does Moses answer? What answer does... God's not asking him a question. There, there seems to be a hint here that while Moses is framing this question as a question about the people, what may actually be happening is Moses has issues in his own heart. Moses is not so confident himself that what God has said is going to happen. God has told him what's going to happen, and Moses says, but what about this, and what about that? Moses is being sent to the people to say, you can trust that the Lord is going to save you. But Moses does not trust 
You recognize that? Moses seems to have a hard time believing. We get playback on the... It's a phone. All right, someone's got a phone going. Okay, we're good. Moses wrestles with trust. He is not sure that he believes what God has said will in fact happen. Perhaps even worse than that is what you get when you come down to verse 13. God gives him signs to say, this will be sufficient. Moses says, okay, well, even if the people believe, the problem is is that I'm not really a good communicator. I'm not very eloquent. I have a slow mouth and a thick tongue. God takes care of that. I will be with your mouth. He sends Aaron and says, I will be with your mouth and with Aaron's mouth. And finally, Moses just comes to it in 4.13. Please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. Anyone but me. Moses has his own trust issues in verse 1, he's answering back to God, but perhaps even more significant or concerning than that is that in light of what Moses says in verse 13, it doesn't matter what God says, Moses just simply doesn't want to be the one to go. He has to go. God's salvation is going to be worked out through His servant. Moses is essential to what God is going to do. But now that we're looking at this essential servant, and we're seeing that this servant is weak in his faith, and this servant does not have the will and desire that you would expect God's man to have, doesn't that give a little bit of uncertainty and throw you off balance? Is this the best that God has to send to us, this guy? Moses looks like a pretty weak and underwhelming servant, doesn't he? And what Moses is being sent to do is to bring a people out of one location and to bring them, lead them into another location. What if the challenge, what if the deliverance that God's people needed was even greater than that? What if the real deliverance and the real salvation that God's people need is not just to be relocated from one place to another, one zip code to another, but to be brought out of death and into life? Is Moses going to be a sufficient servant for that kind of work? You need someone far better than Moses to save you. Do we have someone far better than Moses to save us? Yes. Praise God, yes. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better Moses because Jesus was eternally existing as the Son, 
who was sent by his Father to redeem and save and deliver his people from sin and from death. Hold your place here in Exodus. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 2 and then again in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 10. Look at, look at how Jesus is everything that Moses is not. Moses is weak in his faith. He doesn't know if he believes or is confident that God will save, that God will do what he said he's going to do. He's trying to throw up excuses because ultimately at the end of the day, perhaps it's not so much a faith issue, but it's a heart issue. He just simply doesn't want to go. Look what Hebrews says about Jesus in chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Speaking of Christ, Hebrews says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So he who sanctifies is Christ. Those who are sanctified, that's us. They are all from one Father, for which reason he, Christ, the Son, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will, praise, I will sing your praise. And again, and here it is, verse 13, I will put my trust in you. Who is putting his trust in God? Jesus is. You, right? Sit on that, stew in that for a while. It'll make your head hurt. Jesus, in order to save his people, exercised faith. Jesus, in order to be a servant that would bring God's people out of slavery to sin and death, had to live the life that had been appointed for him with the trust and the confidence that everything that God had sent him to do would in fact be accomplished. Jesus lived by faith in his Father's plan. That means... That means that when we find ourselves in a place in which we find it hard to trust, we can call out to Jesus who is a far better servant and minister and priest to us than Moses could ever be because Jesus knows what it means to trust his Father in the most difficult of times, in the most painful of times. We can admit that we are weak in our faith and in our trust and Jesus will say, but that's okay, because my perfect faith and trust in the Father counts for your weak faith. And my spirit that has been given to you will stir your faith and build you up to give you a faith that you cannot create for yourself. Jesus knows what it means to trust. Jesus knows what it means to trust, even when trusting means you go 
to death. Turn to Hebrews 10. Even if the problem with Moses is not a lack of faith, the problem with Moses at the very least has to be that he simply does not want the job. He does not want the task. He does not want to go back and expose himself to Pharaoh, to the Israelites, to whatever may come through this process. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Again, speaking about Christ. Therefore, when He, when the Son, when Christ comes into the world, He says, Christ says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and in sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. Moses was unwilling to travel from Midian to Egypt to bring God's people out of the Egyptian zip code into the zip code of Canaan. Knowing that God was going to be with him. Jesus comes to bring his people out of sin and death, knowing that in order for him to do that, he's got to go to the place of the dead himself. He must die, and Jesus says, as a man serving his fellow brothers and sisters, I will trust in you. I will do your will, no matter the cost. I want Jesus... I don't want Moses. I don't want David. I don't want Elijah. I don't want Isaiah. Those men are weak, like me. I need someone better than me to save me. I need a better servant. I need a better prophet. I need a better priest. I need a better king. And God, in his grace and mercy, has given us Jesus. Every word that Jesus says is true. God's presence is no more closer to his people than when it comes in the person of Jesus Christ. God with us. Jesus has given signs recorded for us, written down in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of the New Testament to say, here, even if you are weak in faith, these signs, these things that I do, they testify to me. They give credence, they give affirmation of the things that I'm saying and they prove to you what it is that I'm setting about to do. And my encouragement to us, to you, whether you know this Jesus as a perfect servant 
who comes to save those people who cannot save themselves or whether you perhaps do know him to be that servant who saves is that you will either turn to place your trust in him or you will again remind yourself of how good and sensible it is to trust him all the days of your life. Because we have something far better than Moses in the servant son of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, all of these things you tell us were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing and trusting him, we might have life in his name. These things were written for our instruction that we would not crave wicked things. These things were written for our instruction so that we would not lose heart. Father, would you work on our hearts and minds in such a way that we would become thoroughly convinced of what you have said about yourself, that just simply hearing your words would cause us to draw near to you. We're thankful for signs of your presence. We long to see more of that. We long to see you. But in our time of waiting, would you give us a settled contentment and trust that what you have spoken is true about yourself and is true about what you have done and will do for us through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning seeing or listening the things that we're talking about, that they would come to think that perhaps turning their mind and their attention to the words of Christ would give them the ability to see and believe. Draw them to your word, Father, more than anything else. May your spirit be active to bring illumination and conviction and repentance and faith. Build us up, Father, so that as we continue to live on your word, we continue to sing it and pray it, even as we wait to see you face to face. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Through song, we sing about Jesus Christ. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free sing oh sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon paid the debt 
I will tell the wondrous story How my lost estate to save In His boundless love and mercy He the ransom freely gave Sing, oh sing of my Redeemer With His blood He purchased me on the cross, he filled my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. I will praise my dear Redeemer, his triumphant power I'll tell. How the victory he given over sin and... Would you praise his name? Sing or sing. heavenly love for me he from death to life had brought me son of god with him to be sing or sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me benediction Jude chapter 24 or Jude verse 24 and 25 but before I read I do encourage you at the end of the service that you would fellowship with one another and uh, get to know one another as we don't want to kick you out we're not going to turn the AC off yet uh, so we do encourage you to to fellowship at the end of the service Jude chapter Jude verse 24 and 25 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.